Hello, it's Monday, August the 14th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, David Brady, a Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and Doug Rivers, a Stanford University political scientist and Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Chief Scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based internet survey firm. Gentlemen, it's good to see you. It's been about two months since we've had a chance to talk about Donald Trump. Let me phrase the first Long question. Long vacation, Bill. <laughs> you two are always working. Let's start this conversation by putting this in terms that the two of you can understand and respect. You two are part of what I would call the investor class. You two, you two invest in stocks. You like to talk finance. You follow the markets. Let's talk about the stock that is Donald Trump, the president. I went back and did a little sleuthing on the Internet before we came down here today, and I looked at some stocks. On the day Donald Trump came into office, Amazon was selling at about $800 a share. It's now at about 970. It's up about 20% during the Trump presidency. Apple was at 120 when Trump came in. It's now uh, around $160. It's up about 33%. Boeing, good to be in the defense industry. Boeing was at 160 when Trump came into office. It's now past 235. It's up 47%. Dave and Doug. Tell me how the stock that is Donald Trump is trading these days. Well, I knew that I know one thing that Rivers is invested in one of those. I wish I was invested in any of those three. <laughs> so well, we just talk. Market. We just talk about it. So go ahead, Doug. <laughs> uh, well, Donald Trump has been very good to the stock market. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the stock market was expecting, uh, but his delivery of actual things for investors, for the Republican base, uh, and has been remarkably thin, uh, other than the early uh, win with Neil Gorsuch. Um, so the Trump stock, uh, I would say, uh, is somewhat depressed at the moment, and the last month has uh, certainly made the situation worse. All right. Well, well I think... If Trump, if Trump, if the market is to Trump, disagree is it, a little bit, but the question of stocks are there in future. If you're if, so if you're invested in Amazon, you're doing well, but the profit 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 isn't too That's good. That's the Amazon Washington Post. Yeah. So so if you look at Amazon, the price to earnings ratio is not so good. So so the bets about the future, the stock market it seems to me up because while Trump doesn't have legislative achievements. They have made some progress in uh, cutting back regulations and mm -hmm. and uh, and sorts of things that the president, presidential commissions, and uh, administration can do. So, so that 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 helps, I think, explain a part of why the market has uh, stayed high. Mm -hmm. I mean, the economy is strong, uh, and the stock market's good, so people should be happy. They, a uh, remarkable thing is with a economy this good and a roaring stock market, everybody uh, should be loving the president. And, right. Um, right. Now, Dave, well, you, yeah, Dave yeah. you were showing me some numbers before yeah. we came on the air, and you were showing me how independents feel about the economy right now. And it's yeah. worth looking at independents because why? Well, Democrats obviously don't have any love for this president. Republicans, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, they rally behind their president for the most part. They like the administration some power. But it's independents yeah. that are worth looking at. And you've looked at independents. You and Doug have pulled this, and you've seen how independents feel about the economy. And it's a little surprising. Yeah, this comes from Doug's uh, we weekly uh, polling. And it's a net handling of the economy. So that's just the question. Do you approve of the way Donald Trump's uh, handling the economy? And if, the, say, it's 65% approve and 35% uh, don't, then it's uh, the net, the net 
positive approval. Uh, for independent, so as you might expect, on handling the economy, uh, Democrats uh, think he's handled the economy badly. Uh, Republicans think he's handled the economy, approve of the way he's handled the economy. But independents, uh, and he does best uh, of the areas I looked at, which was overall approval of independents, uh, approval on his handling of the economy and foreign policy. Uh, among independents, he stays dead even. He started out uh, first uh, month or two in the polls, uh, a little bit ahead. People thought he was doing a good job. In the economy. But now it's 50-50. So he's doing best on the economy. On uh, overall approval, uh, Democrats uh, don't like him, didn't like him from the get-go. Uh, and just in case uh, people are saying, well, that, that's unfair, doesn't give him a chance, the, his ratings uh, in uh, after one month of office were the same as Obama's among Republicans. That is, Obama was liked by Democrats, disliked by Republicans, the reverse for Trump. But among independents is the difference on the general approval uh, 51 percent. Uh, he had a, he had a positive net approval rating. Today, his uh, net approval rating it's been going steadily down is minus 21 percent. 30 percent approve, 51 percent disapprove. And on handling of foreign policy, he's also in double-digit arrears in regard to net approval. So, because there's about five to six percent more Democrats than Republicans, uh, Republicans have to have that independent vote. And uh, people who've been, I know they've been focusing on Republican support and support of his base, but if you look at the uh, crucial independent vote, at this point, uh, he's, uh, he's not doing well with it. His best area is the economy, mm -hmm. and the economy is booming, so it's kind of surprising that it's uh, a 50-50 deal. Right. Uh, now, he did a press conference, a press briefing at the White House this morning, uh, a brief statement to reporters uh, that was remarkable for two things. First of all, he actually said the words white supremacist and Nazi, which we did criticize for not saying on Saturday. Uh, second, what struck me as striking was the fact that he did this because this is, in effect, the White House admitting that we screwed up on Saturday and didn't handle this right. So he talked about the matter again. What's interesting to me about presidencies, fellas, is that events often overtake other events, and that a month ago we would have been sitting here talking about perhaps the dreaded word impeachment. And thanks to North Korea, and now Charlottesville, impeachment is kind of on the back burner. But you guys have done a little polling on impeachment numbers. And Dave and Doug, tell me what you found. Um, here, we asked a question, even if he was, uh, if the president was guilty of these things, one, c covering up ties between uh, the Trump campaign and the Russian agents, <laughs> colluding with Russian agents to interfere with, taking money from foreigners, trying to influence the election. On all of those, uh, the only one where Republicans say that's enough to impeach him that gets uh, close to 50 is uh, if he took money from foreigners to affect the uh, trying to influence the election. On the other two, it's around uh, 20 and 35 uh, percent of Republicans. Democrats, of course, uh, huge numbers, over 70 percent, uh, favor impeaching him. Uh, on probably favor impeaching, even if they didn't find <laughs> Without that. any of those. <laughs> yeah. things, right? uh, but it's interesting that independents are uh, less concerned about it than, uh, they're not much less concerned than uh, Democrats. A little closer to the Republicans on everything except taking money. But on the taking money, a uh, majority of independents uh, favor it, said that would be, a, that would be an impeachable uh, uh, offense. So thus far, in spite of all of the media coverage, 
It has not. Uh, it is not. It's not. This, by the way, is taken from the YouGov free contact survey, which is the uh, we, they were interviewed 16 times from May of 2015 through the election, and uh, Doug just re-interviewed them, and that re uh, impeachment data comes from there. I didn't personally re-interview them. Yeah, that's right. He did not. <laughs> it's all done by computer. Um, oh, and I thought you no. Yeah, so we also do uh, daily polling um, of Trump approval, and and the interesting thing is that there was a decline. Well, first, the the overall picture is one of amazing stability. That Trump started out unpopular among uh, Democrats, popular among Republicans, and he overwhelmingly remains that. So right. any of the changes we're seeing are marginal relative to that overall picture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still the case that he. Uh, gets on the order of 75% uh, approval rating among Republicans. The thing you can see, though, is um, that among Republicans, the percent that say they strongly approve of them uh, has declined from a number uh, in the high 50s to one that's now about 45%. Uh, um, and that's been uh, nearly all of that is uh, moved to the somewhat approved category. So there is some weakening of the uh, strength of approval. Um, a very modest increase in the percent of Republicans that somewhat disapprove, and essentially um, hardly any Republicans, and the number hasn't budged, strongly disapprove of Donald Trump. Uh, so for a significant number of Republicans to favor impeachment, you're going to have to move a whole bunch of people from the um, category of at least uh, weakly approving to strongly disapproving. Yes, I don't so, see that happening. So yet. let's talk the time. But overall, it's gone down. Overall, he's yeah, no, down. He's, he's definitely weakened, but it's, yeah. you know, it's a pretty marginal. Right. Um, it, and it's movement in these intermediate categories. Right. We haven't had an event that really has shocked his approval. And, that, and that's my next question. Let's, let's talk about what I'd call the Tom Campbell standard. Tom Campbell, a former colleague of yours at, at Stanford, taught at the law school, and was also a United States congressman <clears throat> from these parts back in the 1990s. He was in Washington during the Clinton impeachment uh, process, and Campbell did something very honorable. He decided that rather than just knee-jerkedly casting a vote to do impeach or not, he decided to come back to his district and hold town hall meetings and actually survey his constituents on whether or not they thought the man should be impeached. The point was Campbell was trying to decide what, if this rose to level impeachment or not. So you guys have, have asked the question about impeachment. You put various scenarios as to what will constitute an offense. What is a hanging offense among Republicans for Donald Trump? What would he have to do to actually start moving, moving them? And this is the man who talked about famously killing somebody on what Fifth Avenue thinks. So. I do not. I, I don't. I don't have an answer to that that question. The the only grounds thus far are uh, related to the Russian investigation. That's what the media is focused on. Everybody's focused on that, and I don't see any. And when when they answer the question, even if he did something like that, that was the question. The way it was worded. Uh, they're still not in favor of it. I, I don't. I don't. I can't. I can't think of anything. It needs to be something that's easy for people to understand. Uh, an obstruction of justice uh, is too abstract. Yeah. I think. No, uh, he's Doug's right on that. Uh, and you know, the idea that uh, him firing Comey is an impeachable offense that 
it's definitely an impeachable offense for a lot of Democrats, but right. I think yeah. for Republicans in the end, it's he has the constitutional authority to do this. Um, he did it. Uh, it, you know, that's politics. Um, I think you know further down is it. You know, there are easier things for people to understand, which are like financial crimes. Is he uh, receiving money from Russians? He's not telling people about um, if. You know, potentially, it's hard to imagine, but there could be some sort of connection on uh, essentially WikiLeaks when those things were yeah. leaked. If, if there was a real clear connection between his campaign and he tried to cover that up, right. um, but those are going to be incredibly difficult things to prove, and I sort of doubt they actually happen. That one, one of the advantages of being old is that uh, as long as your memory serves you, the Nixon case was interesting in that way because in the case of Nixon, uh, he the public opinion did not tilt over against him until uh, Dean came on and they found out that he had the tapes and the tapes were erased. That is, once he had the tapes, people were people were saying, "Don't impeach, don't impeach." Once he kn they knew he had the tapes, then he claimed innocence. The, it changed because then he could turn the tapes over. So that was that was an event. I don't see an event like that. Yeah, and secondly, there's a big difference. That was a democratically controlled yeah, House exactly. and Senate. Right. Yeah. This is not. Um, and, Which makes it more difficult. And yeah. it was another era. Um, you know, I, it, it's not clear to me that you can see a president get down to the low 20s of approval. Uh, which is uh, where the bottom was for Nixon yeah. in August of 1974. Yeah. Um, you know, we're just not seeing uh, that, you know, the abandonment by uh, Trump's base, which is this mixture of uh, traditional Republicans and uh, Trump yeah. supporters. I, I think that's a good point. Let me make one, one interesting point. So when we do these... Uh, Gallup does these surveys uh, that ask people, what do you think of the economy? And it turns out a very important uh, variable determining what you think, whether the economy is doing better or not, is your political party. But in this recontact survey, uh, that Doug, one of the questions they asked was, well, uh, in the early one, we knew from uh, what, what, what has your financial situation been like over the last five years? Mm -hmm. And uh, then we went back and asked the same question. We had 30-some 30, 30 percent of Republicans changed their view that, in other words, in September, they said the last five years previous had been bad. Now, suddenly, the last five years were good. So if people are that tied, change it that yeah. way, it's hard to get below 35% uh, or so. Yeah, the, the point Dave's making here is there's a traditional one-year uh, look back on the economy. And people can say, you know, now Trump is in, the economy is looking great, I feel like I'm doing well, even though part of that year was uh, with Obama's president. Uh, we changed it to a five-year look back to say, look, it's no way that what happened over the last five years could have changed that much based on a few months of Trump. Right. Uh, the bulk of the five years has already happened, and we still find people changing yep. their view yep. of how the last five years, what the trajectory has been. Um, that's incredible. That yes. Uh, in December 2015, the two of you uh, co-wrote an article with the headline, Decoding Trump's Supporters. 
I was afraid someone would go get what we said in the past. No, I just was want, all right. I just want to go down the bullet points of what you described as the Trump, the Trump base, and let's just see if you think these numbers still still. Uh, don't leave, Doug. Don't leave. Okay. <laughs> the thing about punditry is you hope people forget everything you said that was wrong. Um, yeah. Yes. Well. Well. Sorry, you have, you have a fellow with too much time on his hands at his disposal, so, so I hate to do this to you. But here's what you described as uh, Trump supporters in December 2015. You wrote, certainly over one half of Trump supporters are female, about one half between 45 and 64 years of age, with another 34% being over 65 years old, less than 2% younger than 30. Does still sound okay? Agree with yes. that. Yeah, so far, no mistakes. Okay. Half of his supporters have a high school education or less compared to 19% with a college or postgraduate degree. Yes. Yes. Okay. Two, two for two. Two yeah. for two. Slightly over one-third of his supporters earn less than $50,000 per year, while 11% earn over $100,000 per year. Same picture. Okay, three for three. Yeah. 20% of his supporters report that they are liberal or moderate, with 65% saying they are conservative and 13% labeling themselves as very conservative. You can't win them all. Okay, so what's changed there? Um, so it has sorted out uh, ideologically. Uh, that uh, when Trump started, he uttered some things that were, uh, seemed like what a New Yorker would say, uh, that he wasn't opposed to gay marriage, right. and, um, you know, particularly on uh, LB. Um, didn't care if uh, Kendall, didn't LBGTQ. Care, didn't care if Caitlyn Jenner used a bathroom yeah. in his hotel, things yeah. like that. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, he also said some things about minimum wage. Occasionally he'd say things about taxing the rich. Right. Um, and uh, at least in terms of governing, he is governed as a conservative, and yeah. um, which has solidified him with a conservative base. That's one reason they, they haven't abandoned yeah. him, even though he's done plenty of things to annoy them. But there are still, so one of the interesting things is that there are a lot of uh, blue collars in the last year, or I'm mean, sorry, in the last, over the last four years that have come into the Republican Party. And so there, I, I don't disagree with Doug's saying, but add to that fact that there are, these blue collars do favor taxing people who make over $250,000 uh, right. a year, et cetera. But it is the conservative base that he's uh, honed up with, and but he still promises these people stuff is coming, so jobs and... Well, he's uh, promised jobs. <clears throat> um, yeah. And, you know, he does symbolic things like uh, on jobs and trade, uh, but I don't think on tax policy you're going to see a Republican proposal no. um, that doesn't lower rates across the board. Okay, two more bullet points. Yeah. His support from those saying they're involved with the Tea Party movement is 30%, meaning that 70% of his supporters are not involved with the Tea Party. That's still probably accurate. Sound about right. Uh, well, he's picked up the support of the people who were Tea Partiers. They're now yeah. in the Trump base, um, but the majority of the public is not a Tea Party right. member, and he does better. Than so, if there's a difference, it'd be marginal. Right. And finally, you wrote: in some, his supporters are a bit older, less educated, and earn less than Republican averages. Well, that's definitely the case. He, yeah. He brought in uh, a demographic. Uh, to vote Republican that doesn't has not historically. Been. Oh, Obama won the high school uh, or less, less than fifty thousand in two thousand and twelve. Obama won that. Yeah, we we have this and he incredible. Got, and, and she got killed. Yes. Yeah. So we saw a, a big polarization by education, yep. and that continues. Okay, gentlemen, let's play political scientist Jeopardy. 
Oh, my God. For $1,000, Ohio State political scientist John Mueller. Oh, yeah. All right. And the question is? Uh, is there a rally effect? Exactly. John Mueller is an Ohio State political scientist. Doug Rivers wins $1,000. In 1970, he wrote a paper called Presidential Popularity from Truman to Johnson, and he coined a phrase, rally around the flag effect. Now, Mueller had five categories for events which would prompt voters to, quote, rally around the flag. And they were, number one, sudden U.S. military intervention. Number two, major diplomatic actions. This would have been during the Cold War, so you'd have been thinking, you know, just, just treaties. Thirdly, dramatic technological developments, Sputnik flying over the United States, scaring everybody. Uh, fourth, U.S.-Soviet summit meetings. Obviously, that's outdated. And then the fifth, major military developments in ongoing wars. Now, this not being 1970, we'd probably add a category today, which would be a terrorist event. Yep. But here's the question, gentlemen. You look at North Korea right now, what's going on in that peninsula, the tensions, the escalation, what could happen, and at least two of Mueller's standards could apply to the Trump presidency, one being sudden U.S. military intervention, and the other could be major diplomatic action. Yeah, this should have been a big rally effect for Trump. Uh, right. However, we're now talking about white supremacists rather than North Korea. Um, the way he handled North Korea, initially, they had a big win. They got... Uh, uh, the UN to vote for sanctions. Uh, Huge if, sanctions. It's got one third of their economies affected. Right, right. Um, if Trump had followed that on with a measured presidential response, uh, I could have seen him getting, you know, my assumption was he was going to get a rally effect. Uh, short of a war breaking out, which is almost guaranteed to get a rally effect, um, you know, he's not going to get any bump from it, and he's probably going to. Uh, be hurt by the sort of off-the-cuff uh, uh, statements he made in the last week. I agree. It fit the it kind of fit the press narrative that you know he comes out with a bombast and then Mattis and the military guys have to Tillerson, the Secretary of State, they have to back off on it, and uh, that. That kind of kills. The, well, I agree with Doug. That kills the any potential I mean, for a rally. You know, the first thing he said is that North Korea best not make any more threats. Uh, well, you know, within 30 minutes, they'd made another threat. Uh, nothing happened. Uh, and, you know, he changed. There was no consistent line, certainly from different people in the administration. You were getting different things. But Trump himself would say different things on different days. Uh, he was completely unprepared on the statements. Uh, you know, so instead of saying something that was clear, concise, and controlled, uh, he appeared to be making it up on the spot. And a lot of tweeting. Yes. A lot of tweeting. So you're suggesting, Doug, that Donald Trump actually could get a rally around the flag bump if he handled the presidency properly. And that's my question. So you're saying that Trump actually could get a bump. Because we talk all the time about his poll numbers, and one gets the impression that he's locked in in terms of support, and he's perhaps locked in terms of opposition. But you're suggesting maybe that there is a little elasticity here. Well, it's a good test, and I was hoping to see it, uh, you know, before other events intervened. Right. Um, you know, certainly if you have a military action, I have to or a terrorist incident. I have to believe there is still some of the old rally effect. Right. Um, Less. But I don't think it would be the way you saw with George W. Bush after 9-11, uh, where he went up to 70% popularity. Uh, Bush was, you know, a polarizing figure as well. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, I don't think under, uh, 
I can't imagine a scenario where Trump could get to 70% popularity. Well, I mean, the one that's <coughs> classic example of that was uh, JFK and the Bay of Pigs, mm -hmm. where he, he agreed he'd been misled. He went to 90%. Mm -hmm. And agreed. There was the U.S. supporting guys with military uh, military support for guys invading Cuba. Kennedy's line was, "The worse I do, the more they like me." <laughs> Let's talk about another scenario though that could affect the Trump presidency, and that is what had happened in Charlottesville this weekend. Uh, and again, let me take you back in history. <clears throat> April eighteenth, nineteen ninety-five. Bill Clinton holds a press conference, and he says some remarkable words. He says, "Quote: I'm relevant. The Constitution gives me relevance." This is a startling thing for a president to say. It's a parent who's doing a bad job of parenting saying, listen to me, damn it, I'm still your father. <laughs> so he is trying to tell the American people he's relevant. The next day, the Oklahoma City Federal Building explodes. And Clinton's presidency changes with that. On April the 23rd, five days after he is trying to tell the American people, convince him he's still relevant, he gives a speech. He gives remarks at the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial Prayer Service. And if you talk to Clinton Aides, his speechwriter uh, wrote a book on this, actually, and talked about this event, it was a turning point in their estimation to his presidency and that for the American people who had seen Clinton for his first couple years in office as just kind of unruly, undisciplined, just kind of, you know, jumping from matter to matter, not really having a grasp of the presidency, suddenly they saw him in a different light where he was not just consoling but actually looked like an adult. So here's the question, fellas. Could Donald Trump, in theory, use a situation like Charlottesville to make his presidency look more, shall we say, adult? Sure. Sure. <laughs> it's not hard. Uh, international crises and tragedies are uh, great for a president. He's the one person that uh, can go on television, uh, say some things that... Uh, show at least some sensitivity to the situation and get across the board approval. Uh, this president uh, certainly doesn't have to worry about not being relevant. Uh, you know, everyone thinks he's relevant, uh, but he doesn't appear to uh, want to do the act presidential bit. Uh, he did it once that I can remember, and that was uh, his State of the Union address. Right. Um, and a little bit of normalcy, uh, goes a long way, and, um, and what we've done essentially is that Trump's abnormal, uh, sort of off-the-cuff, outrageous uh, stuff has set a very low bar for him being normal. Uh, so if he wants to do something easy, uh, go make a speech this week, a set speech that has a script and uh, says uh, the right words, uh, and uh, I think he'll get at least a little bit of uh, praise for it. Well, I, at this point, <clears throat> I don't see how he can do that on Charlottesville's made three statements, a uh, lot of criticism. He still hadn't done enough, blah, 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 which he's always going to get. So if he comes back, that would speech would have to say something like, I, I made a mistake, I, I rethought this. and So I, I don't think that's so. <laughs> what a great opportunity. <clears throat> Show a little humility. But let me say, so if you uh, just push that forward, so all of this assumes that um, he's in trouble. But if you're one of those people that believes that he came to clear the swamp, right. then then uh, going back and coming out at this point saying, "Gee, I was really sorry. I should have thought. I should have. I should have lived my life differently, or something." Uh, now I'm going to change my views. Right. I, I think that cuts. That, that works uh, right against the, his, uh, whole ra uh, the whole rationale of his presidency so, so, to the extent there is one. So, and so the question is, Ed Litvak. 
a pretty well-known uh, national security, wrote a piece in the Times Literary Supplement that said we're going to have 16 years. His, his claim in this article was, look, the average American cannot afford a new car. Given that average American can't afford a new car, and they can't, I can't afford a new car. There's, there's, it's interesting that the data is they can't afford it. Um, the, so the point is, the article is he says, look, that's what made Trump president, this economic thing. And moreover, he claims in the article after uh, Trump's eight years uh, re-election, uh, we're going to have Ivanka for another uh, eight. Now, he may have been doing that just to make a point, but the question is, it, it's nice to talk about Trump's numbers are down as we have, but let me ask you guys a question. Uh, it's not impossible to believe that Donald Trump would be reelected in uh, 2020 uh, easily. Sure. Is that, am I wrong on that? I've learned not to uh, We're make promises <laughs> that I would eat inedible things. Yeah. So uh, in other words, you won't say no, he can't get reelected. Uh, that's a yes. You won't say no. I will. <laughs> you won't say no. I will eat a bug if he's reelected. Oh, well, I wouldn't promise to eat a bug. So I, I don't. Uh, it uh, strikes me. It depends too much on what happens over the next uh, couple of years so many and who the Democrats sure. nominate. Yeah, look, I mean, how many variables can we put in here? First, yeah. first of all, the economy, obviously. If the economy, look, if the economy somehow gets to 3% GDP, as he promised, then he has an easier road to hope. Second, you have to look at the midterm elections. If they hold on to the House and the Republicans could quite feasibly pick up four or five seats, if you just look at the lay of the land, then maybe that kind of cools some of the fever for 2020. Um, the third question is going to be who out there is going to run a third-party challenge. Is, is yeah. somebody going to run under the guise of a constitutionalist like a Ben Stass? Is somebody like John Kasich going to run as a third-party candidate because, well, that's what John Kasich does? Mm -hmm. uh, so will there be a challenge that somehow screws up the Electoral College in that way? Yeah. But that's me rambling on just saying yeah. there's just a heck of a lot. No, of I agree. There's a lot. Yeah. 2020. Yeah, so look, six months is a long time in politics. Three and a half years is a really, really long time. time. Yeah. Um, so anyone making predictions about what's going to happen in 2020 is being intemperate, but that's right. What we're so all, to all do. I wanted to introduce in this was the notion was that, so I wouldn't say the first seven months objectively you wouldn't say even if you're a Trump big time Trump supporter you wouldn't say objectively the first seven months have been uh, fluid mm -hmm. uh, or are particularly successful. So then the question is is that. Does that absolutely mean that the uh, next three and a half years? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't. Right. So there's plenty, there's chances right. to change. The trajectory, though, <clears throat> is not up for Trump. It's been down. Yeah, right. uh, I agree. It hasn't been catastrophic in terms of the support among Republicans. And uh, uh, we asked uh, last week, um, essentially gave people a list of people and said, would they make better presidents than Donald Trump? Um, and... Uh, only who's uh, on the list tell uh, so um, we included the usual set of democrats and republicans liberal democrats conservative pants vice president so the obvious one for republicans is a conventional republican who has uh, a lot of discipline that's mike pence right uh, and only 21 percent of republicans said that mike pence would make a better president than donald trump 21 one in five now interestingly enough only four percent said that mike pence would make a worse president <clears throat> than donald trump okay um the the issue for trump is i mean right now uh, republicans looking at the numbers um do not see an opening 
uh, to separate themselves from Donald Trump. The people mm -hmm. who've done it, uh, like Jeff Flake, uh, are not very popular uh, in their constituencies. Right. Uh, ben Sass has uh, got a pretty safe seat, doesn't have to worry about it, said some very negative things. But uh, the bulk of the Republicans look at it and say there's no mileage at this point criticizing Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. they shut up. Right. But well, again, but, but they, on the other hand, that, that may be true, but they, they, uh, they sent him uh, overwhelmingly a notion that uh, he cannot, uh, they limited what he could do in regard to the Russian investigations. Sure. And uh, frankly, you talk to people on the Hill as uh, members of Congress and stuff, as I occasionally do, they, uh, their view is that uh, they're not afraid of Trump any longer. They're worried about Trump's base a bit. Right. and what he could do in the primaries, but Trump himself, their view is, he'll sign what we send up. Mm -hmm. That's right. <clears throat> and if the incentives change, if Trump becomes unpopular, they will run away from him in a second. Yes. Because it's not like they, in their heart, believe Trump is doing a good job as president. They think it's weird and a disaster. Right. So, Doug, the 80% who <clears throat> think that Donald Trump is a better president than Mike Pence would be, because that's the other way to interpret it, 20%. Well, 80% who didn't say. Didn't say that, right. So the 80%, right. do you think they're clinging to Trump out of loyalty? Do you think they are maybe results-driven, that they are giving Trump the benefit of doubt and saying, okay, let's see what he does on taxes and immigration and the whole, the whole ball of wax of what he's promised? I think he's not a Democrat. Um, so the majority of Republicans right now are still in Donald Trump's corner. They strongly approve of what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, and the things they think he's getting criticized for, uh, they don't think are an issue. They don't okay. think Russia's an issue. Uh, the health care thing, they wanted uh, Obamacare repealed. Uh, I don't, you know, it, at this point, it, they are in Trump's base. So going back to your list, let's set Pence aside. What surprised you in the list? Who was stronger than you thought and who was weaker than you thought? I thought if you gave uh, people a chance uh, to choose, uh, any rational person would say that uh, any number of Republicans could be doing a better job leading the country than Trump. Right. Uh, and that is just not what the Republican base believes. If you ask the Republicans and the independents who voted for Trump. In our recontact survey, it was 54% voted of independents. Uh, ask them if they had the election to vote, if they had their vote to do over again. The question, okay. would you, would you do yes. over? <clears throat> that's a lot, that's still basically anti-Clinton. Anti yeah, the, pr anti the problem Democrat. with that is um, that it makes the alternative Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton right. is radioactive to Republicans. Yeah, I agree. Um, and she's not that popular among Democrats. Um, so uh, we also asked, would Hillary Clinton make a better president than Donald Trump? Uh, and of course, most Democrats agree, but um, it was only 35% uh, of the population said that she would make a better president, and 45% said she'd make a worse president. Um, so, you know, the Democrats have moved on. Hillary Clinton is no longer the alternative. So I don't think the question about if you had to vote over again, who would you How many said Bernie'd be a better president? Uh, um, on the Democratic side, any... Yeah, who was, who was the strongest Democrat on your list? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you I made me whistle. shut down my computer to yeah. be in here. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, how did Bernie do? Go ahead, and I'll, I'll get it. 
Right, because this goes back to our guys of how does Donald Trump lose in 2020. Well, you can't beat something with nothing, so you've right. got to find a Democratic challenger, somebody who can rally his or her party, which is a very divided party right now. In fact, we're having a Ro Khanna, the congressman from um, San yep. Jose, Silicon Valley, is going to be here on next Monday to, to talk about this. Right. Uh, so you need somebody who can unite the Democrats, but then somebody who can play in the great beyond, beyond the coast. And I'm not sure if that creature exists right now. Now, granted, yeah. a long time until 2020, if we were sitting here in 1989 talking about 1992, Bill Clinton probably wouldn't have come up in the conversation no. or very, very much the tail end of it. So things can change. Oh. But right now, they don't have a lot of strong alternatives. Anymore. I agree. They're going to have the governor of Montana, who's a uh, uh, guy who won re-election, even though Trump carried the state overwhelmingly. Uh, you're, he's, you're, saying uh, he's thinking, you like, you're saying that because you like him or because you have property in Montana? No, no, <laughs> both. Uh, no, property in Montana. But he uh, he is uh, he's thinking about running. So, But it's just as you said, it's, you're, you're going to get uh, kind of the Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And uh, there's some in the party now saying that they're making, uh, you have to pledge to be a supporter of a single-payer government uh, health care plan. Otherwise, you won't. So they're planning, this new group uh, is planning on running primary opponents against Democrats who they feel are not strong enough on the issue of single-payer. So you could divide the Democratic Party right now into three pieces. One is the very traditional Democratic Party. Uh, which someone like Terry McAuliffe, the governor yep. of Virginia, yep. uh, seems to be angling toward. Uh, the second would be the progressive wing of the party, which would be what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would represent. And then the third, and it's very easy to mock her because she says a lot of ridiculous things, but that would be Maxine Waters because she is appealing to African-Americans. And it doesn't take a genius to go back and look at the vote, vote in 2016 and see what the African-American vote uh, the effect it had. Well, the Democratic Party is very interestingly... Uh, high-income, high-educated uh, people, right, and uh, identity minorities. What about a former student of yours, Cory Booker? Well, I like uh, Cory's. Uh, I like Cory. Cory's a nice guy. He's thinking. He's thinking about running also. Right. Okay. All right, Doug. I've given you enough time to look up your computer and yeah. the popular <laughs> Democrats. They hid the data from me, so I can't give it to you. It was hidden. Uh. Someone's fooling around with the data, and it disappeared from my screen. Uh, okay, so there you go. It. So we're not next time. On next we'll time. Talk about Two months from now, I can tell you about, about that one. Box. So last week, Trump passed the 200-day mark. So we've now had him at 100 days. We've had him at 200 days. What are you guys looking forward to? What are you expecting between now and day 300? What are the benchmarks that you're keeping an eye on? All right, so the big question for Trump is how quickly uh, the Russia investigation will move along, and it seems mm-hmm. to be moving quite rapidly at the moment. Um, and whether Trump does something crazy, uh, like firing Comey, he could do the same thing with Mueller. Um, you know, that's the that's the thing that can cause him institutional trouble in Washington. Okay. Um, and you know, how does that play out? I mean, the way these things happen is if prominent Republicans do start to come out against them, it will weaken them a bit with the base. This is right. a case where. Uh, the uh, Republicans in Washington uh, potentially lead uh, rather than follow their voters. Mm-hmm. So the benchmarks, uh, <clears throat> benchmarks for me are the Republicans started out with health care, and they started out with health care for a good reason. Uh, they, if they could uh, repeal Obamacare or change it in significant ways, there's a lot more money mm-hmm. to be able to deal with a reconciliation budget. 
So uh, for me, uh, they're going to have trouble with the budget. Uh, they're going to have trouble with the budget resolution and taxes. And let me say, this is from John Cogan, a senior fellow here, right. former uh, deputy director of OMB. Uh, John has a piece that's uh, going to come out. Uh, and and uh, Republicans, if you look at the budget resolution, which is kind of the pie in the sky, it says over 10 years, it says $45 trillion. Mm -hmm. But then you say, all right, I want to look at the budget reconciliation, which actually tells how much money you've actually committed to doing that. So it tells the committees, you have to cut this much. And we're not going to tell you how to do it, but it has to be this. It's $300 billion. That's 1% of $45 trillion. So the question I'm looking at is, so how does the Freedom Caucus look at a commitment of $300 billion versus $45 trillion that you talk about in the pot? Right. So I think they, they uh, for me, the Republicans uh, have to deliver on uh, tax policy. They have to deliver on tax cuts. And that's so what I'm looking at is internally mm -hmm. how are congressional Republicans uh, going to deal with that? And then uh, can will, will President Trump get involved in it in some way, in a positive way, which he didn't on health care, and uh, actually bring some resolution to that question? I think you're unlikely to see... Uh, Trump do anything uh, that would move opinion on these things. He just doesn't have the attention span for it. Uh, on the other hand, tax policy here doesn't divide Republicans, the marginal Republicans, I think, the, uh, to the extent that uh, uh, repealing Obamacare did. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> the overall politics of a upper income tax cut, uh, which is what any of these reform plans would involve, uh, substantial decrease in corporation taxes, which has no public support, um, is a political loser for Republicans. Right. The problem they have is uh, a reconciliation budget, which is what they need to get uh, 50, because they only have to have 51 votes, 50 with Pence. Right. But the problem, so they can't afford to lose many like they did on health care. And, and the problem there is that the gap between what they claim and what they can do and tax cuts. If you're going to do the tax cuts, then you have to have corresponding cuts. Well, at this point, what's happened is uh, Trump has said, well, we're not going to cut Medicare and Medicaid. That's two-thirds of the budget. Uh, of the third that's left, discretionary, well, we're, gonna, we're actually going to increase military expenditure. That's half of the third. That means out of one-third of the, uh, uh, half of one-third, one-sixth of the budget, you have to take all of the cuts before you can do the tax cuts. That is going to be a difficult problem, and that's why uh, I made the point about yeah. the forty-five trillion versus right. the three uh, three hundred billion. <clears throat> yeah. So we have a few things coming. So one's the budget. Second's the debt ceiling. Right. Um, so these are both very messy things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the famous line about you don't want to see legislation made any more than you want to mm -hmm. see sausage, sausage being made. Right. Um, I my assumption is they would try to detach tax reform from. Uh, either of those and claim it's a revenue neutral tax reform. You, you uh, got to cut stuff to do that. Right. Yeah, so the problem is if you want to lower rates, you have to um, either uh, increase deductions or you increase the deficit. Uh, and increasing the deficit makes it tough because it has budgetary implications. And there just really aren't a lot of deductions to get rid of, like the mortgage interest deduction and so forth, that are really popular to get rid of. Um, and then on the corporation tax, 
there is bipartisan support from that. It's just politically unpopular. Right. I, I think going in, the one thing you don't want to – Mitch McConnell is uh, really good <clears throat> at bringing uh, – he's a really good majority leader. He's a good minority leader too. And the point I want to make on that is so when everybody said, well, McConnell, you know, he kept it all hidden, the process. He kept the, uh, pro he kept the uh, health care bill with that group of people because if it went to the regular committee process, it would have been over-amended. As over-amended, it would have not met reconciliation standards. If it doesn't meet reconciliation standards, it's automatically dead because you have to have 60 votes, and you sure as hell weren't going to get Democrats coming around. So Mitch McConnell was actually understanding the rules of Congress. He did a very good job, and he got within one vote, John McCain at the end. Right. And there's some question in my mind if John McCain had not been diagnosed with brain cancer and then thinking about, in the time I've got left, how do I want to be perceived? I don't want to be, I want to be perceived as more the rebel or cross-party cross guy. So he came very close. So it seems to me the president probably ought not to be taking on McConnell. McConnell ought to be his uh, ally. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's going on there? Well... Donald Trump has to lash out at someone on Twitter, so McConnell was uh, receiving that raft. Yeah, so, I don't think McConnell is going to reciprocate. No, uh, he didn't. But there is the moment at which Trump actually needs a favor from McConnell, uh, and I don't think he's exactly. going to get it. So final question, I'm going to let you go. We've talked about all Republicans could be doing between now and Thanksgiving, all they'd like to do, but you fellows at all times are looking at the polls. What do the polls tell you as to what the public wants Congress to do? Get along. <laughs> Get things done. Uh, well, congressional approval is actually up uh, a bit from it? where it was. Yeah, I mean, it's been down in What's around up 10. And it's What's up, 15? So it's a robust no, teens now? Or, no, it's or? in the 15 to 20 range Whoa. as opposed to the 10 to 15 range. Okay, so it's almost an adulthood. Um, <laughs> you know, Congress is very unpopular. People don't know what Congress does. Right. Uh, they like their congressmen, but they hate Congress. Yeah, and that's uh, why, and that's why such a low percentage of incumbents continue to get elected. <laughs> well, well, you know, a congressman is a he or a she, and Congress is an it. Yes, it's, an yes. Entity. it's a hostile <laughs> entity, if you will. So that's a problem. I'm not no, putting I mean, those together. Right. I mean, but, the way it works is everyone loves their congressman because they're defending the stuff that their district is getting against all those other e 434 other evil exactly. members of the house. Exactly. All right. So. Committee, so Congress working together. Is it is it is it bipartisanship they want or they just want to see production? I, I think the average American doesn't doesn't pay as much attention to politics as we do. They don't watch uh, MSNBC, CNBC. I mean, you know, if look at the Fox. You mean three the million people. ratings are down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, three million people. That's it. Right. So so the question is they, they want the government to work, they don't want to hear about all the fighting. They don't wanna they don't wanna be blown up. <laughs> And they want the economy to function reasonably well, and not to, and not to hear uh, and not to hear all the bad things coming out of Washington. Yeah. So average people watching Congress dislike conflict, and that's yeah. why Congress is unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, they say they want compromise, but the compromise they want is for their position to prevail. Okay. Dave Brady, Doug Rivers, if you're in town around Thanksgiving, let's talk about day 300 of the Trump presidency. <laughs> We're in. <laughs> Sounds like a decent interval, Bill. <laughs> You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. 
If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you don't mind, tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. David Brady is not on Twitter and damn proud of it. <laughs> Doug Rivers is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Doug underscore Rivers. Please write him. Yes. <laughs> I'd also encourage you to go to uh, follow his work at UGov, and the UGov Twitter handle is at UGov. That's Y-O-U-G-O-V. At both places. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts in the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.